You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, South Africa's African National Congress has been trading off its reputation for two decades. This is the party, after all, that overthrew apartheid and the party of Nelson Mandela. But voters are tired of being grateful and increasingly disappointed at the party's failure to deliver. Bill Corcoran in Johannesburg on local elections last week that may be a political turning point. At 82, Japan's Emperor Akihito is feeling his age and contemplating retirement, but the law does not allow it. Once an emperor, like a bishop, always an emperor. Or so it goes. David McNeil, our Tokyo correspondent on the challenge presented by Akihito to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. On Friday, the UN Security Council holds its second secret ballot on a successor to Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who will step down at the end of 2016 after two five-year terms. There are 12 candidates, six men and six women. Ruin McCormack, our foreign affairs correspondent, looks at what is likely to be an exhausting and exhaustive contest for the world's top diplomatic post. South Africa's local elections last Wednesday were in many respects a coming of age for South African democracy. The ruling ANC party got a sharp lesson. 20 years after the overthrow of apartheid, a rebuke to its sense of presumption, its sense that it is a God-given right to rule. And the opposition Democratic Alliance broke out decisively out of a white party mould. Bill Corcoran, the election was more or less lost by the ANC rather than won by others. Real problems of the economy not being addressed. And and they have a real problem with Jacob Zuma, their president. Yes, that's correct. If you look at the figures, the ANC overall lost 8% on its election result from 2011, where it fared worst was in the, the metros. It fell below the 50% mark in Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth in Cape Town and also in Pretoria. So now these are four hung councils and there's a bit of horse trading going on at the moment. Zuma has been um, a big problem for the ANC for a few years and indeed many of the opposition parties, rather than campaigning on local governance issues, really played this out as a campaign against um, Zuma and his presidency. I mean, he there was a big scandal about paying for the uh, house that he was built by the by the government. And uh, there's cronyism going on, on on a pretty substantial scale with Zuma. Yes, um, his home in, in Clanlo cost $250 million, and that was paid for by the taxpayer. He initially refused to pay any of the costs of the security-related upgrade despite having been told to by the public protector and eventually went to the constitutional court where he was found to be in um, to not be carrying out his oath of office. More recently, something like 733 corruption charges have been reinstated against him that date back to um, the arms deal in 2000 when the government was fitting out the, the navy and the army. So he has numerous scandals swirling around him that just never seem to go away. Well, what is the ANC doing? Is, is the ANC taking on board the message that the electors have sent? Is there any evidence, for example, that they're prepared to move against Zuma or that they're preparing the ground? The next elections are in 2019, isn't that right? It is right, yeah. We're hearing um, a few of the, the, the spokespeople have come out and said that the party will now have to get, uh, get involved in a great deal of introspection 
and um, look itself in the face to see what exactly has gone on. While this was a local government, it's going to be far more at stake um, at the national level. You're going to have a lot of MPs whose um, 120,000 euro a year salary will be um, on the line. Um, whereas in the local elections, the, the, they weren't. So you would think that something will have to change. Zuma has a strong support in the rural area. The, the ANC actually secured 54% of the vote, but they still held um, absolute majorities in four of the provinces. Um, so he still has a strong, strong base in the rural area, and he's a rural man himself. So it's a matter of whether the, the powers that be within the ANC that want to get him out have the strength of numbers to do so. I mean, one of the problems, too, was as well as a switch to the Democratic Alliance, uh, there, was a, there was a failure of ANC voters to turn out. Yes, well, that's the thing. It, it's not so much that the DA increased its votes substantially. Um, it's more to, uh, the fact that something like 3.5 million voters who had voted for the ANC in the national elections last time, in 2014, didn't turn out this time to mark their ballots. It was. It seemed to be more like a protest, a form of protest against Zuma and the ANC. Um, so rather than switching allegiance, they have decided not to vote as their form of protest. The Democratic Alliance, which we don't really know terribly well here, has been rebranding itself from a party which was tired as a sort of white man's party to, to one which is finding an echo in the black middle class. What are its politics? It originated in, in the white middle classes and the, and the white society in South Africa. But last year, it uh, appointed its first black leader, um, a young gentleman named Musi Maimani, um, who's in his mid-30s from uh, Soweto. And uh, he is at the forefront of the rebranding process. Um, if you look at the makeup of the party, it would... It does reflect, it is, it is the only party, you'd have to say, in South Africa that is multiracial, if you look at, the, at the, the numbers of people that make it up. So it is trying to rebrand itself, but whether it can do so in time to garner enough of those 3.5 million voters who were up for grabs in the 2019 election remains to be seen. A lot of work needs to be done, especially in the rural areas. The, the DA lost support in a number of um, promises in the rural areas, despite the fact that it, it posted dramatically positive results in, um, in, in four of the, the big metros. It actually beat the ANC, while not making the 50%, above the 50% mark, it beat the ANC in Pretoria and in Nelson Mandela Bay municipality, which covers Port Elizabeth, which is the port city there in the Eastern Cape. So um, they're now going to have four years to prove themselves that they are, are better at governance in these cities, which is that enough time to, to make a mark before the 2019 polls come in and our elections are take place in, I think it's about three years time, if you look from date to date. Uh, it's, it's unclear, but by the time the next local elections come around, they'll, they'll have had five years to, to make their mark and um, we'll be able to see then how they can progress in the 2021 local elections. Now, one of the stories of the election uh, was a 10% vote for the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is uh, a party led by the firebrand Julius Malema, and they're eating away at the ANC vote from the left. It's something rather akin to the anti-establishment parties of Europe now. Yes, um, a very, very interesting character, Julius Malema, maybe the most interesting young politician on the African continent, no matter how you, you view him and his politics. He was the former leader of the ANC Youth League, one of the men responsible for putting Jacob Zuma in power, then fell foul of Zuma and was thrown out of the party in 2012, and then 
formed his own party in 2013, which is the Economic Freedom Parties, uh, Freedom Fighters, and they have done dramatically well in both the 2014 general election and now this local election. Now, while it, they haven't won a council, they are uh, the kingmakers in these major metros because both the ANC and the DA are in the sort of mid-40s in terms of their percentage vote, as the EFF are, have got about 10% in, in the major metros. So now... There's a lot of horse trading going on at the moment. They have 14 days from when the, the election results were announced to um, come and form a proper council. So uh, negotiations are going on at the moment. There's not an awful lot being said uh, on the record at the moment, but you're hearing that the, the EFF are, are saying that they would consider going into, the, into coalitions with the ANC if Jacob Zuma were to stand down, um, which must be a fanciful uh, thing to to. to believe that they'll, they'll acquire. Um, it's more likely that they would form coalitions with the DA, uh, where the DA needs them when it comes to uh, Johannesburg and Pretoria. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Legend has it that the dynasty of which Emperor Akihito is part has ruled Japan for 2,700 years. Akihito, who you've just been hearing uh, making his uh, rare speech on, on television this week, is 125th in the line from his ancestor, Emperor Jimu, who, it is said, was descended from the sun goddess. David, how is Akihito viewed... Uh, he's Japan's first constitutional monarch, in effect, in an, in an extraordinary line. And how, how popular is he? Well, to, to be perfectly accurate, he's the, he's the second because uh, his father, of course, became a constitutional monarch after the war. Uh, and, uh, you know, to go a long story short, as many of your listeners will know, of course, Japan lost the war. And uh, most of the countries that Japan fought and um, um, indeed most of the people around the world at the time wanted uh, Akihito's father strung up. They wanted him executed. And um, the compromise that the Americans came up with, because they viewed him as a unifying symbol of the country and they didn't want to execute him, uh, they wanted to hold the country get together, was to turn him into a constitutional monarch. And Akihito, his son, of course, uh, has inherited that system. So he's the uh, um, uh, person, I suppose, who has been... Um, uh, born into that system, if you like. And he's viewed in Japan with, uh, with some affection. And, and I suppose one of the reasons why he is so well-liked and so respected is that uh, he has very much um, um, obeyed, if you like, uh, and um, um, fitted into that system that was created for him, that straitjacket, you know, because that's what it is. It's a constitutional straitjacket on the powers of the emperor, uh, and he respects the Constitution, uh, as, as his speech made clear, because, you know, uh, if you look at the speech, it was quite short, but um, seven different times he said, uh, so he used the phrase symbol of the state, and it, it's like um, he, was, uh, he was very keen to reinforce that idea, that he is a symbol uh, of the state, despite what other people might want him to be, um, and that uh, he w wants to continue that, uh, uh, to be that. And he also, of course, is known to very much respect Japan's pacifism, the pacifism, again, that was imposed on the country uh, by the American occupants after the war, 
Um, so the fact that he wants to step down was um, was viewed with some shock, uh, but most of the surveys that I've seen suggest that the vast majority of Japanese people support uh, uh, that wish. It's something like 85% is the figure quoted in the Yomiuri, Japan's biggest newspaper. Now, he's also head of the Shinto religion, isn't, isn't that right? But no longer a god. That's right. He was, uh, you know, again, to, to cut a long story short, during the major restoration of Japan, which was the sort of modernizing period, the, the, the period when Japan in the 19th century and early 20th century became this modern industrial power, and also, of course, an imperial power with a, a military, which eventually tried to mimic uh, the actors of uh, the actions, I should say, of the West, of the Western colonial powers in Asia. Um, he was uh, uh, the emperor was the center of a sort of cult, if you like. Uh, Shinto was the state religion. Uh, the emperor was the head of that religion and the head of the Japanese family. Uh, all Japanese children were taught uh, to, to respect him, to, to worship him even. Uh, and, of course, when the war was prosecuted, when Japan went to war against uh, many of the Western powers in the 1930s, the war was prosecuted uh, in his name, in Akihito's father's name, in, uh, um, Hirohito's name, uh, and Hirohito was the was the the emperor's name was what millions of Japanese soldiers died uh, with their with his name on their lips. Uh, so so that uh, that entire system, if you like, was dismantled uh, after the war. The Americans democratized or tried to democratize the system. They reduced the status of the emperor and they made him into a symbol of the state. Now he has said in in his broadcast that he wants to retire. And and most people think he should be allowed to do so. But even the bar on, on political engagement made it difficult for him to make this request. In fact, it's it's not even that. It's it's that everybody has to read between the lines. Well, what's the problem here? Well, it is, yeah, I mean, it is an extraordinary situation that he had to kind of avoid the word abdication. And the reason, one of the reasons is because uh, there was no, first of all, uh, stipulation uh, for an emperor... Uh, resigning, written into the Constitution. But what was written into the Constitution was that um, the emperor uh, is a symbol of the state and the unity of the people, and he derives his position from the will of the people with whom resides sovereign power. And again, that was the Americans sort of very carefully saying, well, look, we don't want this guy getting out of hand again. We want to put him in this constitutional straitjacket. But what that means is that he's forbidden from any kind of political commentary, from saying anything that might be interpreted as uh, as a political, uh, and and that includes calling attention to his own position, if you like, in the constitution. Uh, so because he was forbidden from making any uh, reference to his own position, uh, he had to kind of give this quite tortured address where he was expressing his wishes. That's the way NHK, the state broadcaster, sort of uh, um, called it. They said that he was uh, uh, expressing to the Japanese people his wishes, but anybody who heard it was very clear that what the emperor was saying was, look, you know, I'm, I'm old, I'm 82 years of age, uh, I have, I've, been, I've suffered some serious illnesses, the emperor has uh, uh, had heart surgery, he's had prostate cancer, uh, he's had pneumonia, uh, and I would prefer to be able to step down, if possible, before uh, I become incapacitated, before I have to scale down my activities. And then he did say something really interesting as well, which was that, you know, he, he, didn't, he doesn't want... Uh, his illness uh, to incapacitate the nation, and he may have been talking about his own father, Hirohito, who 
when he passed away uh, in 1989, uh, he was on his deathbed for three months, and the, the country kind of was in this spa- state of suspended animation for most of that period, and, and everything ground to a halt. And he may have been sort of recalling that and saying, well, look, I would like to step down before that happens. Now, Conservatives in, in Abe, uh, Shinzo Abe's party fear that the uh, talk of abdication and of talking of changing the law is going to raise the issue of female um, succession, which they are they are opposed to. Um, are there other issues that are impeding political discussion of, of abdication? Well, uh, obviously, because there is no stipulation in the Constitution for uh, the emperor to step down, uh, what they what the government is trying is sort of forced to do, if you like, is to uh, consider a special law for a one-time abdication only by this emperor. And that's the sort of talk at the moment. That's the talk since the emperor uh, made this speech. There are several issues. You know, one uh, issue, and this is historical, this goes back to uh, the Meiji era and before, is that there was this fear that there might be a dual power structure. There was a fear that uh, one emperor might step down and that he might still continue to exercise power as the other emperor, uh, his replacement, steps in. And, and uh, that kind of idea of a dual power structure was seen as a problem. Um, as you said, you know, the, the other issue that the government is sort of keen to avoid is um, really tinkering with the imperial household law, which governs the emperor, because there's, there's all sorts of um, um, issues there that they might want to avoid. And, and the female succession issue is probably the most prominent, because there was a debate here, you might recall, uh, about 10 years ago, um, before Abe, just before Abe was prime minister, on allowing a, f- a female to ascend the throne, and that would have sort of modernized Japan. Uh, and that was killed off, uh, first by two things. First of all, um, the, the, the day was saved by, if you like, by uh, the birth of a, of a boy, uh, but only temporarily because, um, you know, the, the entire weight of this institution, this 2,600-year-old supposedly institution, is, is on the shoulders of this little boy. Um, but the other thing that killed it off was the conservatives. They said, well, we don't want uh, a female to ascend the throne. And they, they, some of them were unusually frank. I mean, there was one who was on the record as saying, quite a prominent prominent uh, politician who said um, that, uh, you know, we don't want to sully the imperial bloodline. And he, he sort of gave this horror scenario of Princess Aiko, who's uh, the emperor's granddaughter, going abroad as a student and marrying a foreigner and coming back and having blue-eyed babies, you know, that was the sort of the, the, um, the, the expression of, of um, uh, unusually frank expression of what might happen if they were to allow a female. So that was killed off. And that debate, uh, you know, it's sort of, if you like, it's still hovering in the background and uh, it still could come back at some point. Uh, and that's the thing that the government, this government in particular is keen to avoid. Now, just to finish, I mean, if the crown passes to his son, Naruhito, uh, is he cut from the same cloth and does he want the job? And what about his wife, who has been quite reclusive in, in recent times? Well, you know, he's a bit of a, Naruhito is a, a bit of a, um, an unknown quantity. What we do know is that uh, he appears to be um, liberally inclined, like his father. Uh, he has given, uh, also given sort of certain oblique statements uh, pointing to his belief that the pacifist constitution uh, and the constitution which was created by the Americans uh, uh, is, is correct. Uh, the, the issue, and, and as far as we can tell, he hasn't made any statements saying that he doesn't want the job, and he's almost exactly the same age as his father when he stepped in. Uh, he's in his mid-50s. Um, so, I mean, I think the issue, and it's one that I don't see much reporting of, is, is, uh, is his wife, 
Masako-sama because Masako um, has essentially sort of retired from official duties. Um, she has been diagnosed with uh, a, a medical condition uh, which means that she has been unable to perform her official duties more or less uh, for the last decade. There's all kinds of speculation about her mental state. Uh, that uh, there was one point, in fact, about five or six years ago, when people are speculating that she might even want to divorce her husband and move out of the imperial palace. So the, one of the points of interest, I suppose, for people who look at the family will be how will she stand up to the job? Uh, what kind of uh, empress will she be or what kind of wife will she be to the emperor? Thank you very much, David. You're listening to the Irish Times. The UN Security Council will continue to hold secret ballots on the 12 candidates for its next and ninth Secretary-General until the consensus is reached. Diplomats say the aim was for the Council to recommend a candidate to the 193-member General Assembly for election in September or, or October. It is a bit of a bizarre process, but in the end, is it not the big five who will decide? Rune McCormick? Ultimately, it is, yeah. Um, the Secretary-General is appointed by the General Assembly of the UN, um, but on the recommendation of the Security Council. And what that means in practice is that the decision lies with the Security Council and in turn it, it, it lies with the five permanent members of the Security Council, um, the US, Russia, China, France and the UK. Um, traditionally, the Secretary-General emerged after some opaque, uh, completely non-transparent horse trading involving the five permanent members of the Security Council. And this has been criticised very strongly for years uh, by UN member states who are not on the Security Council, not among the P5, and also among uh, the NGO community who have in recent years begun a campaign that has, I suppose, culminated in some uh, reform around the edges of the process. Um, so this year we, we have a process that's somewhat different in that candidates' names have been circulated in advance. Um, most of them have taken part in... Uh, public debates uh, in the last few months where they set out their stall and say what they would do as, as Secretary General. Um, the UN, for the first time, has also publicised, uh, has released information about the process. So we know what the timetable is broadly. Um, we know when meetings of the Security Council are coming up where this will be discussed. But, um, you know, some light has been shone on the process as a result, but uh, fundamentally the system has not changed in that it still rests with the Security Council uh, and the five permanent members still have uh, veto power over the decision. And the balancing system is, is quite odd. It is, yeah. We're at a stage now where we've known for a few months that there are 12 candidates, so one dropped out the... Uh, uh, the, the, the candidate who came last in the first straw poll uh, uh, left the field. So we now have 11 candidates and there have been two rounds of straw polls within the Security Council. And what that means is that um, each of the 15 members of the Security Council are given uh, a ballot paper and with each candidate's name on it. And they're invited to signal either encouragement, discouragement or no opinion um, after each name. Uh, and the object here is to winnow the field, to make clear to candidates who have no significant support that they need not pursue this and should drop out. And so it's an iterative process. So this could continue, uh, in theory, it could continue until the end of the year if it's slow and if no front runner emer emerges. But what is happening is that the, 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 the field is narrowing. You're seeing that certain candidates are being objected to by so many states that really their their chances of succeeding are very, very low. What we don't know 
uh, at this stage is whether, let's say you have a candidate, if we, if we look at the latest round of voting, for example, the person who emerged in front was the former Portuguese Prime Minister, um, Antonio Guterres, who's also a former head of the UNHCR. And so he got encouragements from 11 states, he got discouragements from two, and no opinion from two others. What we don't know, however, is uh, of the two states that indicated discouragement for Guterres, whether either of those or both are permanent members of the Security Council. So if they're not, it doesn't matter a great deal and he could still have a very good chance. Um, but if they are, if one of those states is a, a P5 state, then his chances have probably been torpedoed. And they're not saying? They're not saying, no. It will become clearer later on in the process where there'll be each of the countries will be given colour-coded ballot papers. So the, the P5 will have different coloured ballot papers. And so if you're unlucky enough to have a discouragement uh, from one of those, I'm not sure what colour they're going to be, let's say it's red, if you get a discouragement from a red member state, you will know that you have no chance and that you should promptly drop out of the field. Talking, uh, come back to the to the field uh, in a second, just talking about Ban Ki-moon himself. Mm. He, he currently oversees some 41,000 civilian staff and 16 peacekeeping operations. And the UN has a budget of some 2.7 billion, with a peacekeeping budget in addition of nearly 8 billion, uh, which is it's, it's a very big job. How how is Ban seen? How has he performed? I, I think opinions differ on on Ban. Uh, he's coming to the end of a a, a, a second term. Um, the process from which he was selected was this one we've just described. So naturally what happens in that process is that you end up with the candidate who is deemed least offensive to all the P5 member states. So you will tend not to get a candidate who has said anything particularly controversial about Israel and the Palestinians, about uh, Eastern Europe, about NATO, about Russia, China or the US, who are, I suppose, the three awkward members of the P5 uh, who people watch most closely. So he emerged from that process, which I suppose you have to keep in mind. Um, he's he, Within the system, there are a lot of people who, who speak very highly of Ban as somebody who knew how to work the system from very early on and was a very efficient and competent administrator, which, as you say, is important given that he's managing a system of 41,000 people and a budget of almost 3 billion euro, uh, or dollars, should I say. Um, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're managing an extremely complex global organisation. And that's important. He's also been praised, I suppose, on two issues in particular. One is gay rights, where he's been quite outspoken over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, another is um, reform of the system. He's, he's talked a good game on reform of the system, and people say that he's genuinely committed to that. Now, whether he managed to succeed a great deal is a, an open question. However, all of that said, um, there are others who say he wasn't a particularly charismatic uh, leader of the UN, that he wasn't quick enough to stand up to the Security Council. This is always a vexed question. You know, to what extent the, the, the Secretary General can stand up to the Security Council. People say the UN was too slow to respond to the Ebola crisis last year on his watch, that its response to Syria has been inadequate. Um, there's an article in the UN Charter, Article 99, which I don't have the wording to hand, but to paraphrase, it says that the Secretary General can indicate to the, can, can bring to the Security Council's attention an issue which he or she regards as of major international concern. And people are saying, even though Ban could not have forced the Security Council to agree on a strategy on Syria, he could have been more confrontational in putting it up to the Security Council and saying, this is happening on your watch and you really ought to do more. Now, in, in terms of the contest to succeed him, um, 
you've you've spoken about Antonio Guterres. Um, there is a sort of tradition of uh, a sort of almost Buggins turn, which a different region of the world get, gets to nominate its secretary general in, in turn, and it's supposed to be uh, notionally uh, the Eastern Europeans this time round. Uh, do they have any front runners? You're right. There's been this uh, convention or tradition whereby a different region of the world gets the gets gets a turn at the job of secretary general each time, and there are a few that have never had it. Um, and one is Eastern Europe. There are others too. Central America has never had it, and so there's um, there there are people in that region who, who who believe it should be Central America's turn. But um, attention is focused on Eastern Europe. Russia has been particularly forthright in saying it's it's the turn of an Eastern European to to run the organisation. And of those twelve candidates uh, who have declared publicly, now remember the the ultimate uh, winner doesn't have to come from that group of twelve. We could have a a, 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 a candidate who, who will emerge very late and who will be promoted by one or other of the P5. But of those 12 candidates, eight were from uh, Eastern Europe. Of the 12, six were men, six were, were women, and eight were from Eastern Europe. Um, the speculation has centred a lot on Irina Bukova, who is the uh, head of UNESCO, the UN's um, Education, Culture and Scientific Organisation, um, there's a lot of speculation that she's the candidate preferred by Moscow. Um, among those eight who come from uh, Eastern Europe, there are a group of former foreign ministers, former prime ministers, but several of them are people who came to prominence over the last 20 years as sort of Western-oriented, reform-minded um, leaders of Eastern European countries who would not necessarily have been seen as close to Russia. Irina Bukova has the advantage of having run a big UN organization, but she also studied in Moscow. She speaks fluent Russian. Uh, her father was the, uh, a prominent figure in the Bulgarian uh, Communist Party before the Berlin Wall fell. So she's seen as being palatable to Russia too. However, in the last round of voting, three states uh, signaled discouragement uh, to Bukova. And there's been speculation that at least one of those states is the US. Um, and it's believed that the US is pushing uh, the name of Susana Malcora, who is um, Argentina's foreign minister. And so it's been presented in the last few days as a, a, a battle of wills between the US and, the, and Russia, who are each promoting the candidacy of each of these two candidates, which means inevitably that neither of them can succeed because um, the Americans can veto Bukova and the Russians can veto Malcora. And so then what you're looking at is whether they can find a compromise candidate. That candidate could come from Eastern Europe, which Russia wants to see. It could be a woman, which the Americans are believed to be pushing quite hard for in the background. It'll be um, the first uh, Indeed. Woman. It'll be the first woman, yeah. Finally, can, can I just ask you, is, does the need for reform of the UN impinge on the choice in the debate? Have have they made reform a substantial issue in the in the speeches that they've made and the orientation that they've taken? It has come up. I, I watched one of the debates about three weeks ago, and it came up sort of at the fringes of the debate. It wasn't one of the central issues. The central issues you tend to hear about a lot are um, the, the peacekeeping role of the UN, for example. Some candidates are in favour of a much more robust approach to peacekeeping. Um, others have spoken a lot about human rights, um, focusing on the treatment of women, generally on development. Um, reform of the UN system itself comes up sort of on the fringes, as I say, but it's not one of the, the key issues. And I suppose the background to this is that 
every time the UN Secretary General is selected, there's a lot of discussion about the UN being at a moment of truth and having to redefine itself and reform and so on. I think that's been less of an issue this time than last time. If you remember the last time we were emerging from the, the George W. Bush presidency, John Bolton has been, had been the US ambassador to the uh, UN, and the, the legitimacy of the UN as a multinational institution was contested like never before. I think that has been less of a feature of the debate currently. That could change if you have Donald Trump in the White House after the US presidential election in November. He's spoken a lot about, um, you know, he's questioned the value of the UN, the amount of money the, the US uh, gives to the UN. So that internal reform of the UN system could become a bigger issue if something like that were to change. But at the moment, it's not the key issue. And does Ireland have a, an interest at all? It has a big interest because Ireland is a big fan of the UN. Um, like a lot of small states, Ireland is deeply committed to the UN. It feels that the UN amplifies its voice on the international stage. It hasn't indicated any preference for a candidate. Like most states, they don't want to offend uh, other candidates. Um, but clearly Ireland has a lot riding on it and um, it, it would be greatly to Ireland's advantage if it felt it, it had a friend in that office. But it hasn't anybody specifically in mind. It hasn't anybody specifically in mind. Thank you, Rowan. Thanks to Bill Corcoran, David McNeil and Rowan McCormick and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>